This is Thomas DePaulo. This is Dole. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Tonight on The Green Box, we present the second half of our interview with Chris Gunning, beginning with a topic of great personal significance to me. So this is this is a big circle back to way back, Chris, when we were talking about um, March Tech and its its relationship with with Delta Green, and you mentioned they had a relationship with GRUSV8, which I actually didn't realize. And as the token Canadian on this podcast, I have to ask, what is your take on March Tech's relationship, if any, with M Epic? So um, my wife and all my kids are from Winnipeg, and my last post was in Winnipeg, so I I follow. I have a, a, a close connection with, with Canada um, and conceptually I love M Epic. And I know you guys were talking about M Epic too in one of the previous podcasts and just thank you guys for kind of getting M Epic because, because it is different. And as a Canadian agency, it functions differently than, than Delta green. And I've seen too many times that basically it's just a pastiche of Delta green with, with an a and a, and a maple leaf thrown on top of it. It's got some, it's, it's, worse in some ways and better in others right like from 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 an administrative and from a mandate perspective it's it's amazing right because like just in canada you know the rcmp canadian law enforcement for anybody that's not familiar with that and that's listening to this canadian law enforcement is so fundamentally different than what you get in the united states it's it's vastly different um really you've got rcmp and rcmp does the work of basically the fbi to a lesser extent the cia atf basically all the federal law enforcement agencies that we think of are all handled by rcmp and to a lesser extent um cbsa which is customs and and rcmp also provides uh Provincial policing, don't they? Yeah, they provide provincial policing to everywhere outside of Ontario and and, um, why am I forgetting the province's name? Quebec. Quebec, thank you. So, um, and outside of any um, like major city, right? So RCMP doesn't provide protective or law enforcement (coughs) services within Winnipeg or within Edmonton or within uh, Vancouver, but outside of any of those those, uh, municipal areas that have their own police departments... RCMP provides that. So, like, I'm familiar with Manitoba. RCMP provides all policing services, all of it, everything. Uh, yeah, again, like, you know, ATF and FBI and and everything in between, including Secret Service, is handled by RCMP and the handful of individuals that are doing that in Canada um, outside of Winnipeg, right? Um, and the same thing with Saskatchewan. It's across except for Ontario and Quebec because they have their own provincial police services. Every other area is covered by the RCMP outside of the cities. And that's what M Epic gets right. Um, and so on one hand, you have this wonderfully vast mandate, right? M Epic um, mirrors the RCMP in that way in that they basically have been empowered by the prime minister's office to do whatever the crap they need to do in terms of, of the unnatural. Um, but on the other hand, just like the RCMP in real life, um, they are 
horribly undermanned in a way that, again, that we as Americans don't quite understand. We think and under-equipped, right, and, and horribly under-equipped and underfunded. And so we as Americans look at the ATF and FBI and marshals and all those others, and we think that they are under-equipped. Looking into CBSA and RCMP, um, we have nothing on that. Like the the work, and I've worked with RCMP officers. Um, they are absolutely amazing, and and their mandates are so broad and they're stretched so thin. And it's reflected so wonderfully in M Epic. Um, so sorry, I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but uh, but you know, from from any of you that are interested in 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 exploring, you know, Canada and and Delta Green up in Canada, please take the time to do a little bit of research and don't just make it uh, don't just make it a pastiche of American. So the question of of what is like Delta Green's marches, but in particular March's relationship with with M Epic. I don't know yet, and that is a big like I've actually got it written down and my my outline, and and I don't know yet. Um, I I tend to lean towards them not having a relationship, partly because M Epic is so small, and like I was telling you guys, my perspective of March is that March is scared of Delta Green and SV8, and they are digging their head into the ground to a lesser extent in terms of of Pisces. And and M Epic and the handful of other you know mythos related organizations that are out there like and um, so it's not a great answer right now but I think the most realistic answer is that March doesn't have a relationship with M Epic except in the occasional times like they March would know about M Epic M Epic probably doesn't know about March um, but that could change I See, it's wouldn't yeah. it, wouldn't it be uh... I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was some sort of a contract, or what if uh, M Epic kind of got some prototype March gear? Since uh, M Epic is the type to use the unnatural, they authorize the use uh, in a limited capacity for their agents, right? Or am I or am I completely off base here? I, I will admit I'm not an expert on M Epic at all. Prototype and any Canadian law enforcement don't really belong in the same sentence. It'd be more like they stole it. I had this joke, this the this story that I tell Chris, um, a friend of mine. Uh, that I, I play board games with is uh, he's retired Navy, uh, U.S. Navy, and we were talking about um, I forget how but the topic came up that the uh, the the, the Air Fifteen issued to the Canadian Army is a different name because it's by Colt Canada and we issue, we issue the, the C Seven and then my buddy who's like he's a gunsmith he knows all about this and he goes no no the the, the C Seven is the M Sixteen you mean the C Eight and I say no 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 I mean the C Seven and he goes that's it's a fifty year old rifle. And I'm like, yeah, which makes it 20 years newer than our submarines. <laughs> it makes it makes it 50 years newer than your Rangers rifles, which was only just replaced this year. Yeah, they still ride they still ride horses for Pete's sake. But yeah, so I I'm personally fascinated with M Epic. I don't know if Shane has farmed out kind of M Epic to anybody in terms of of riding. I know Pisces is has been farmed out and it's not to me um and i don't know british law enforcement or the or britain worth anything so i think i think that 90 percent of the content but that about, that's been made about m epic besides the book itself has been made by like at least at least everything everything beyond the official materials has been made by people in this chat right here yeah so and and the thing about m epic is um the, the closest thing that you're ever going to find in my opinion to m epic is the cowboys right like that 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 mentality cross transcends, and so were I ever given the responsibility to to work on the Cowboys, I would have the Cowboys have a relationship to M Epic because those two Ooh, that's could good. talk 
You know, like they would have, they, they could talk in a very similar way. They would, you know, they would meet eye to eye and they would probably look at the, the mythos and the unnatural in a very similar vein. Less so March. Sitting around a bar telling uh, war stories. Well, well, it, it's it's one of those things where um, people people forget that the that the the cowboys were all about using magic and weaponizing the unnatural. the The view now is that they're very much burn the books and bury the scholars. But no, they were right up there with them. Epic, like uh, Doctor Jensen Wu, Agent Nancy. They were all about that stuff. Yeah. For who who disagreed? I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on that. That's not necessarily wrong. I just want to hear what it is. I just I just believe first of all that the program and M Epic would have a much Especially because MFPIG is an official arm of the Canadian government, that they'd have much more of a relationship with the program. Second of all, I don't think, especially because of MFPIG's lackluster amount of organization where everybody can just fuck off and study mythos, as many mythos tomes as they wish, I don't think the outlaws would take a liking to that, that half of their members could be compromised and most are compromised. No, that's an interesting. It- and that might be, you know, like, again, where I'm writing that, that'd be an interesting take, too, is like maybe the Cowboys hate M Epic because they are mirrors in a lot of ways of each other. Right. So the thing that the outlaws and the Cowboys don't like about themselves, they project out onto M Epic. That might be one of the takes I would I would go with that. It's the same reason program and March hate each other. The thing that I thought of immediately, Chris, when you're talking about the outlaws having a relationship with M Epic was given that we know from the handler's guide that the program has a relationship with M Epic. Uh, I I would be wondering what M Epic's take was on the Majestic War because if M Epic is talking to both Delta Greens, surely they know something happened. They probably maybe, don't know the difference. I I that's actually a good point. Maybe they know. Maybe they don't. Yeah, right. And and you know how how well was the Majestic disaster covered up to those who were on the periphery? Right. Like that's the other question. Does does SV8 know exactly what went down, especially with their intel assets? Um, I'd like to say yes, but I think from a, from a different perspective, it's a pretty interesting question. If they, if you say no, that's again a, a I, in both cases, I would probably explore what the more interesting narrative process is. I I find M Epic fascinating though too because when I think of M Epic, like again, where March and the program and SV8 and all the others are, you know, on the precipice of disaster. Like M Epic is so much closer. Like M Epic is basically yeah. like a, a you know a, a misfired round or a heart attack away from complete and utter collapse and disaster in a way that can't be covered up. And that was ten years ago that that we last heard about what was happening to them. Yeah. And so like if you're if you're March, sorry, I'm gonna kind of just talk out louder. If you're the program, I understand that they may have relationships with M Epic, but if they already don't trust their own people, and if you're March and you don't trust Delta Green, and if you're Delta Green the program and you don't trust March, if you know anything about M Epic, they probably scare the living fuck out of you. Absolutely. You mean the uh, literal federal agent wizards? Yeah. Right. The only thing about Canada that's scary to America. I disagree i am entirely afraid of uh moose's meat meese shooting a moose will really just piss it off i mean we hear all the time about like cars on the highway that hit a moose and the car is totaled and the moose just walks off so now you guys are giving me the idea for an adventure in which you're asking about relationship between march and and m epic right what if what if you know like kind of a big campaign march goes after m epic as 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 literally two big of a threat and if they can't go after delta green m epic is too weak and too yeah like and too deep into the unnatural to be allowed to exist any longer and again if you're march tech uh m epic 
as well as Delta Green SV, and SV8. But um, they all represent potential competitors to your competitive advantage in terms of market share, right? Um, from a, a purely business standpoint, and got a monopoly on the unnatural. You do. You've got an un, you've got a, a, a monopoly on on monetizing the unnatural, and you think. If you're March Tech, you think you're damn good at it, whether or not you really are. Regardless, part of your narrative to yourself is going to be you are really, really good at handling that. And you, March Tech, are the only ones with the assets and the intelligence and the personalities to be able to handle it. So you probably don't like Delta Green a whole lot. You don't like SV8, but they're too large and potentially too useful to get rid of. M-Epic is not, and it's awful close. And yeah, so now I'm kind of imagining an adventure in which your M Epic agents and and literal men in black basically are coming after your ass. I love I love this though because um, at the same time March is saying, "Hey, let's take these guys who don't even know we exist right now, have a huge basket of powerful magic weapons, and are led by a crazy wizard, and let's piss them off." Right. Yeah, they didn't know we existed, and now we're gonna give them a reason to to hunt our asses down. So you 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 get the initial wave of of uh, black helicopters and drone strikes and and you know failed brakes on your car. You figure out who's doing it. And you go kill Bill on their asses. This is rolling back a little bit from future stuff to past stuff, but you had a hand in the equipment creation in Delta Green. I would just like to applaud you on being able to do that without degenerating into gun fumbling. So yeah, that's that was that was a design principle that was presented to me by by the Delta Green guys, basically up front, and Shane in particular, basically saying, you know, the the gun fetishism. Um, if people want to do that, they absolutely can, but we are not going to spend word count on that. I, I just wish they wouldn't do it in my games. <laughs> right? How do you feel about that, Kevin? I mean, I love guns, but if you don't, I'm not going to force myself upon you with gun nerd stuff. And I'd rather just roll firearms once and have to roll firearms and then roll for the cartridge failure rate and then roll for the powder burn to be correctly applied. You know, yeah, like That's the thing that. is people want people want realism in 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 how much damage the the various calibers or whatever but no one ever wants symmetrical realism nobody ever wants realism in what gunshot wounds and and concussions can actually do nobody wants realism in like in cleaning up the body nobody wants that. yeah yes <laughs> the part of it that that um that i that i think about most often is that um it's a it's a, this is a game and in in a game uh the players are typically going to reach for the thing that does the most damage so you look at the pistols and you give the players a choice of which they're going to take and unless they're like really thinking, okay, I'm a federal agent, you know, my agency issues a SIG, you know, what, P22, something or other. Um, unless they're thinking in that regard, they're going to take a heavy pistol. Same same deal with a, a, a carbine versus a heavy rifle. In Delta Green, the latter is strictly superior from a damage perspective. So that's what I come back to when I think about equipment and uh, and the equipment system in the game, is that there, there, it feels like there are certain use cases where most of the time in RPGs, players just want the thing that does more damage. And that's not an interesting gameplay decision, right? It's also a very specific design decision within this version of Delta Green, which is is to pull away from that. Because if if there were just pages and pages and pages of, of different guns, that that's you know um, undermining 
all the other stuff that this game is trying to do. Um, in terms of things like we were talking about in bonds and violence and coming to grips with that stuff and having to clean up the body, all these things we've already talked about. Um, you know, if you spent a, a ton of time building up the guns, that's that's telling the players, even just, you know, from looking at the book, oh, well, this is an important part of the game. So instead, when you when you pull that stuff down to kind of just its basics, it's telling the reader and the player, this is not important. And and that's, it, you know, from a design perspective, it is, it's a fascinating kind of meta. That is a really good point. There are some games that I can think of that do lean harder into the equipment side of things and give people, oh, give players... I was actually thinking about this phase, but <laughs> Sorry, yeah, man. and give players the wrong impression about what the game is supposed to be about. But Eclipse, in Eclipse phase, getting the biggest gun really is the most important thing. Like, and the and the biggest, baddest, more from the highest speed, which is because... is counterproductive, I think, in a game that wants to be about um, horror and conspiracies. Yes, I am. I'm right there with you, right? And and you talk about Eclipse phase, and I'm glad that it's getting a second edition. But like that first oh, yeah. edition. I mean, it's so painful to go through. When I ran Eclipse Phase, we went over to Fate, which is still not my favorite system for different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like there just seems to be a distinct disconnect between what you know what that that game wants to do originally and and the system that they present you. And again, from from a player's perspective, if you're if you're a prospective player and you don't know what you're looking at, you just open up the book, you see the art, and the art tells you one thing, and then you see all the other stuff, and, and you think you're playing Shadowrun, and, and you probably shouldn't be. I think, though, that that's a game where having the, having the most firepower really is, like, quite important because the, the combat system is so structured towards rewarding people who have min-maxed perfectly and punishing anyone who hasn't. Yeah, and from, like, I've got a buddy that's a system mastery guy and absolutely loves diving into that and he's also really into setting stuff so eclipse phase that first edition is like his sweet spot um in terms of being both a player i, I mean I'll, I'll be mean to them but like i loved make i loved i loved all the the bullshit rules exploits you can do like you know you make a guy who's good at psychosurgery and he's got no skills but then he sleeves all of his edited people <laughs> into his body and he can use any skill he wants and have six guns and and get you know four actions per turn with each of them and yeah it's a, there's this 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 sick thrill in a setting that is about optimization and actually lets you optimize to a ridiculous degree. The problem is that it's not fun for anyone else. Right. And so that's not what this Delta Green does, right? Like there was a very clear vision that the Delta Green guys had about the types of games they're going to play. And there, there are failures. There are absolutely points of failures. And I know you guys are familiar with them. And, and, and just let's, let's be clear. I don't think, I don't think that, that a scenario that has a lot of shooting is a failure. Like there's a scenario, um, Lover in the Ice. Lover in the Ice is a bug hunt. And yet, it's a great scenario because it's all about atmosphere and setting and having a cool monster to fight. But at the end of the day, it's about rolling firearms. But it's a it's still a good scenario. Chris, who who do we have to thank for what I think is probably like the two best parts of the combat system of Delta Green? The decision to only have one skill for firearms, as opposed to like splitting up between pistol, rifle, shotgun, submachine gun, all that. Who do we have to thank for that? And who do we have to thank for the uh, lethality system? Because I think we all agree. Lethality is the bee's knees. Lethality uh, was firmly in Shane and Dennis's. I didn't have a role in that, and you're absolutely right. Like it's again, that is a system decision that really underscores how characters need to or players need to be very conscious about when they're they're using violence, right? Because while they can be throwing around, you know, shots, 
they're going to be coming right back at them, and that's a serious thing. And there's not a whole lot of games again that really explore that. I'm the wrong the wrong person to be talking about the the you know the the how it's it's not good to always use violence because I wrote a I basically wrote a character optimization guide for you want so you want to be a computer scientist but not immediately get killed when the shooting starts. There's Nothing a shotgun with, that. with the holographic sight. Now you have at least yeah, get that, at least sixty percent plus forty to hit. So you talk about the skills and the firearms one. Um, that that's largely on my shoulders, and I'm glad I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that because that was that was something I went into. Is I'm a big believer that, um, like I said, with my stories, right? Um, is that there needs to be something to be done, and and there needs to be a reason for like, like I said, each one of the paragraphs that I that I write tries to give the reader something. I don't like filler words despite what my editors are probably going through and being like, oh, how much passive voice can one man use? Um, but but at least from a conceptually standpoint, like all my paragraphs are supposed to do something. And I wanted that with each of the skills. And so Shane and I went through the skill system ruthlessly. And, and the bottom line was, if we couldn't immediately imagine using a, that particular skill, whatever skill it was, in a session immediately, it went away. Um, and we, we specifically try to roll as many of those skills together. One of my, my favorite skill sets is, uh, is a free game out there called Get Smart Now. It's based on Fate, in which the designer, whose name escapes me right now, basically rolls up all of the skills that he could think of into about seven. And I've always emulated that. I've played with it. And that goes a little bit too far, but I've really respected what that designer was doing. Um, and that was something we were trying to do with Delta Green is make sure that um, there were meaningful decisions. And that's another design principle that I, that I hold very dear is in character creation and, and anything else that I design, there needs to be a meaningful decision. So there, there shouldn't be an optimal build. There should always be at least a, a, a point where the player, while they're building their characters, second guesses themselves or has to evaluate the utility of one skill over the other. And so, you know, we know firearms is super useful, but we tried to collapse all the other skills into things that would be super useful as well. And so that you as a player have every reason not only to invest into firearms, but to invest into any other skill that is there. That's good. One of the more meaningful choices that I've had to make when I was designing characters was, do I really want to burn a bond for 50 extra skill points? Because that's that's just an example of that meaningful choice that you have to make when you're putting a character together. So I have, so were you just drunk when you, you decided on first aid, medicine, and pharmacy? That was just <laughs> and surgery. So that one came down to, and that was a tough one. Um, first off, I don't drink very much, um, so so no. You're very defensive. Uh, that was no. That was that was completely conscious, and I will I will take that on on. On me. The other one, though, is that at some point there had to be a realism aspect, right? And so you couldn't roll, you know, like conceptually, I, you know, having, you know, used firearms, I can kind of roll all that stuff up, right? The, conceptually, the difference between using a shotgun and a pistol, while they are fairly significant, you don't really need the, your muscle memory for those is not that significant. The difference, though, between pharmacy and surgery is too wide, you know, um, it's, Rolling it all into one, as useful as that skill would be, would start to break verisimilitude in terms of realism. Fair enough, uh, but not to put too much on the spot, Chris. Counterpoint. Please. What, if anything, is surgery done 
in the field with no tools, if not first aid? Uh, I would say in that case, probably nothing. But that's the point. Like if you if you want to do surgery, if you want your character to be capable of surgery, you know, if you want a character that is a surgeon, they shouldn't just have a catch-all medicine skill, right? Um, no, you're not going to use surgery in the field. Um, but we felt that it was important that you should have a surgeon type of character. And with the rules that we built, that was the best way to represent that. In another system, I would probably represent that as kind of like a feat or something along those lines, like a, like a specialization or, or a secondary way to use your skill points to purchase it out. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. Like in the field, you're not supposed to be using surgery, but if you do want to play a surgeon, that's the only way we could represent that. I think um, I would I would have done it probably as you're right because you're right having one is ridiculous. I probably would have done it as two. Uh, one for one is first aid, which is recovering HP, and one is medicine, which is everything else. Stick pharmacy under science chemistry because it's not the same thing, but it's close enough for government work. Collapse artillery into heavy weapons because artillery by its own doesn't get used that enough. I think. And um, the only other one I can think of that's really a stand that really stands out is uh, ride. Ride's fun. I like the fact that you can take it on a police officer, and for M Epic, you can take it on a federal agent. Mounties, yeah. But that's another one where, where I, I really struggle to think of a use case for. That was the other thing I was I was wondering about with uh, the the complex is that there's a craft when I when I looked at the draft there was a craft handle animal or dog handling I think craft dog handling yeah and I thought I thought that 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 just seemed so hideously unfair to everyone who took ride that. Now your animal handling skill is not the correct animal handling skill. There's another one. So yeah, I mean the 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 problem there again is is part of it is trying to reflect the real world, right? And uh, it's it's a tough one, right? Like where how far do you collapse it or not? You're 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 not wrong. Like in some of those, collapsing it down makes a whole lot of sense and, and would push it. There, you know, like I said, for my system optimization guys, um, they like having those other rules out there for you know riding an animal versus, you know, training an animal, those are different skills, skill sets. It's a question of how deep you get into it. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's an imperfect process. And, and I will fully accept that, that there are some skills that probably could be broken out and some skills that can be collapsed. The beauty of role-playing games is you guys are more than welcome to continue to break the system's that, that I had a hand in and and so so rather, rather than rather than tearing you down I'll, I'll try and build you up you are uh, learning a language now I am what do you think of language skills in RPGs because this is something that because we're talking about skills we're talking about you know should you know how, how do you set it, everything up um, I think language skills are one of the ones that I definitely struggle with both as a player and as a handler so um, yeah we've I've talked to Shane about this too and and and, and figure out a better way to use the system that we have in place to reflect languages. Um, I'm not overly critical. I know a lot of people get really, get really torn up about language skills. And, and, you know, the big one that I experienced was the world of darkness in which you just bought dots and you bought extra languages and, and people had a hard time with that. I don't know. Like from my perspective, if it, if it pushes the game along, especially in languages, you go with it. I like I like that. This the Gumshoe does the same thing where it's it's one point per language, and I think Pathfinder. I think even I think even a lot of D twenty games do it. Well, Gumshoe does additionally the thing where it's one point per language, but you get to retroactively decide what those languages are as it comes up in play. So you don't get the problem of well, I put all my points in ancient Assyrian and uh, and and uh, Arabic, and we're, we're 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 you're in Babylon. Yeah, we're in Babylon. Yep, yeah, and that that totally makes sense. I think part of it is that. 
a big design goal for the standalone edition of Delta Green was everything had to be compatible with prior editions of Call of Cthulhu. So this is just really something that was inherited from that game, and you can't change it up too much without uh, risking losing that compatibility. So the other part of it is I'm a bit of a language nerd, right? So I speak four different languages, not including English at varying levels of, of competency, most of them relatively low. Um, and there is differences. So like from from my my bureaucratic and professional experience, the Department of State rates people in their language abilities on a scale of one to five. And so I approach languages from that perspective. When I hear speakers speak a foreign language or even English, I'm always... I'm often thinking about how they would score within Department of State's rating system. If a five is basically a university level professor, a one is rudimentary level in which you can make simple factual statements and then it's rated in between there. I, I do like the percentile system in Delta Green because it does allow a gradation that when I am running, I've got an idea of how capable that individual is in the language. As long as in, in, and I've talked with the other Delta Green guys, basically, as long as you've got some rating in the language, there's an expectation from, from the guys that designed the game that you can you can function in that language. I'm taking I'm clipping this and I'm I'm saving it in my back pocket. I'm gonna have it on a tape recorder whenever I play this game from now on. <laughs> there you go. Like and yeah, absolutely take that. Because because that's what it's there for. Is if you're willing to invest the points or take a character option that has invested the points into a language, you should be able to use it. The question is how much, right? So at a basic, at a, and and I often think of myself in terms of languages of how long can I last? And so when I, I personally look at percentiles in Delta Green and even Call of Cthulhu is basically 10% equates to, it equates to basically a minute, right? So if you've got, if you have 10%, you can have a conversation for about a minute, which is, you know, like basic introductions, maybe discussion about the weather, and then your grammar and your, um, and your your nouns and verbs start to fall apart, whereas you know you get to to a hundred percent and you can carry on a conversation for ten minutes. And frankly, you know, accepting this podcast, most conversations last about ten minutes. Yeah. Um, and so and so that's kind of been my gradation. You know, fifty percent is is somebody that is is quite capable at the language, and anything above fifty percent is getting into somebody that has a deep understanding of it. And and I, you know, as well as an understanding of related languages. So if you've got like a 60 or 70%, at least at my table, if you've got a 60 or 70% in Spanish, you've got a basic understanding of the other romantic languages, except for maybe Romanian, um, that I'll, I, I kind of allow like a 10% for Portuguese and French as well. In other words, you can kind of listen and you can, you can butcher the, the verbs and the nouns and the speaker of that other language will be able to get it. But if you've got a 10 to 20 to 30%, in Spanish, you've got enough to be able to get those core sentences out. The other thing that I kind of explored at one point at my table was um, for every, you know, 10 percentage points or so um, is the number of words that you are allowed to use at the table during that that session. That wasn't 100%, like, it wasn't a great, yeah. So, like, if you had 10%, you were allowed to basically say 10 words in Spanish during that entire session. That didn't quite work out, but... But it was it was an attempt. I had a uh, Spanish for law enforcement. Bit. It was basically the Manos, motherfucker, put your hands up. That was, that was about all we really got out of it. 
That's all anyone in my work remembers is Manos' hands uh, from that session we had. Same. And that's probably a 2 or 3%, right? Like, you know, and a 10% is a little bit better. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so on one hand, it is nice to just be able to invest in dots or whatever and have your mastery of the language. But the thing that Delta Green allows is a better understanding of, of how far you can get with that language. And in a game where where reading ancient Arabic could actually be useful, that kind of gradation does make sense. We're getting back to our tomes episode now. Yeah. I, I'm enjoying this. You know, like, I, there's there, there are things that every writer goes back and says, okay, this was great. And then goes back and also looks and says, ah, I, I wish I would have done this a little bit better. I can't look at anything that I've drawn more than, like, you know, a week ago before I look at it and be like, wow, that's, get it, get, it, get it out of here. Well, frankly, I think y'all did a damn good job. Yeah, like, and and also I think we're I think we're beating up on you for stuff that wasn't your decision either. You know what though I don't feel beat upon if that that makes any sense right like this okay. is, you you guys are are your criticisms are are born of but are, are born from a place of love right and I'm sorry to use that phrase but like you guys know the no, game because we play we play the game a lot right. so we you know the game you're invested in it um, it means a lot to you guys. I really genuinely like this podcast. I was telling Kevin, um, I, I've seen a progression in this podcast over the last, especially the last series of them. The the level of professionalism and sophistication of the discussion that's coming out of this podcast is is equal or better than any other gaming podcast I've encountered. Um, and so, one, thank you for having me on. But the other one is, you know, so when you guys are making a criticism of Delta Green, I know as as both a writer and a fan um, that this is an intelligent criticism and it's based on considered thought. Well, thank you for glad we have this on record because I'm going to save that. And uh... yeah, I mean, I, I can tell a number of you are very, for lack of a better phrase, but very well read on role playing games. I should show you pictures of my role playing game collection um, because I move so often for the Department of State. Um, my it was up to four thousand pounds of just role playing games. Um, Holy shit, and- man. Yeah, wow. I've got. Jeez. If I don't have the largest in the world, it's got to be in the top five. This is good, man. It's like uh, when, when my buddies PCS and they change stations in the army. They always like pack an anvil in with their stuff and then unload it when they get to their duty station. You'll just probably buy some more uh, RPGs and let the government pay for it to transport it for you. It, it, it's it's a sore spot for my family. Let me just say that. Like uh, this, we're we're moving to Bolivia in about six months, and. Um, most of them are not going to be going. They're going to go into long-term storage. That uh, that brings me to another question for you. Wh- which ones are you going to take with you to Bolivia besides, obviously, Delta Green? So I have not decided yet. Um, I own uh, one of the copies of the Last Unicorn Games Dune game, and I'm a huge fan of Dune. Oh, oh my shit. God. shit. Oh, yeah, magic just... words. Kolahad. <laughs> Praise the maker and his water. Praise passing cleanse the world. The story there, and and this is 100% true. I was living in Denton, Texas, and there's a place in Denton called um, Recycled Books, and it's an old old opera house, and it is a beautiful place, and if you're a bibliophile at all, it is it is awesome to go through. It just smells like books. and An opera house full of old books, you say? Yeah, it's, it's actually. And, in, <laughs> and Denton is such a cool little city on the northern end of, uh, of Dallas and Fort Worth. So, so I, went, I, was, I was going to school at UNT, University of North Texas there, and I went in to go. I, I would periodically go into their role-playing game section, right? And I go in, and lo and behold, somebody had given up their pristine copy of Dune, and it was right there on the shelves. And I, I pull it down and I look at it and they had marked it down to $15. Um, 
Nice. And so, like, I'm walking up, and, I, you know, like, role-play games are such a niche deal. Like, nobody knows. Um, and But I'm all, like, sweaty-palmed, and I'm pretty sure I'm shaking, and maybe have a little bit of sweat on my brow as I come up to, like, buy it. And they're like, oh, this looks like a nice book. And I'm like, yes, it certainly does. You should have talked them down a little bit, man. Oh, yeah. this, this old thing, I'll give you ten bucks for it. It's it's unfortunate that that game is unplayable because the necessary splat books never came out. Yeah, but they are making a new one, right? So and uh, modi- they are, aren't they? It's yep. it's it's a two D twenties. So they're doing a two D twenty, which is a system I really quite like. I really, yeah, I it's the one yes. Conan's on, right? Yeah, yeah and exactly. Star Trek, and, and which I, I like Star Trek um, as well as uh, Infinity and a couple others. Um, so that that's one that is probably going with me just because I find it so precious in in the true golem sense of the word that I don't know if I can part with it. Um, I own a couple other fairly rare books. Um, I own like all the old um, Pendragon stuff, and I really, really like Pendragon. That's another one that when you guys are asking me about skills, Pendragon has a lot of influence on deciding skills and things like passions and stuff like that. Wasn't that one of the first games to start doing uh, blackjack on opposed D100 rolls? Yeah, yeah, right, and and just if you guys are familiar with it all, the the use of passions as as a character driver is one of the first times. Greg Stafford, his loss for the industry really was a legitimate loss. Like his vision for how role playing games could be built from both a system and a setting standpoint was, and, and I don't use this word lightly, but it was legitimately revolutionary, and it set up a lot of the narrative stuff that has underpinned. A lot of the really cool things that have come afterwards. So, so that'll go. Um, yeah, I've given up a lot of stuff. Let me see. Here, here's a related question. What do you think of the FFG Star Wars RPG? So, I'm actually playing in a game right now of of it. Um, I I like the system. So, I'm conflicted because it was clearly built so that they could sell more dice. Um, yes, oh, that is come on. <laughs> I like that, that Ke- Kevin, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, everyone, everyone like here likes the game. And yet when any of us voice any criticism of it whatsoever, even when we say that we like the way you run it more than the way the game is actually written. So let's talk, you know, to talk a little bit about Star Wars one. Um, it absolutely is like the peripherals are important to the, to the system. And you can tell that Fantasy Flight Games made a conscious business decision to create their own IP dice associated with it. And if there's any question there, the two pieces of evidence I give you are one, how FFG under Christian Peterson was absolutely ruthless in a very good way in terms of making business decisions to support their stuff. Um, if a, if a system or a game was not selling, they had no problem canceling it. And so they made all their decisions on making sure that they could make every game as profitable as possible. And then look at the games that preceded this version of Genesis and Star Wars. In particular, um, it was uh, Warhammer Fantasy Third, right? Which it was, it was tokens and it was specialized dice. And you look at, at their use of specialized dice in Descent and things along those lines. Like they've built, they've built a business model that requires you as a player to purchase these extra peripherals. Requires, in quotes, because I haven't done it because I play online. Yeah, same um, with us. Yeah, exactly. Right, but so, so it's not hurting us, but you can tell why they made those particular decisions. Um, as, as a system, I absolutely love it. But going back to a game that I don't think 
it has started to, to move beyond its core premise. Um, like making my characters and seeing the other players' characters that are in my setting, it feels a lot more cyberpunky because of the the huge lists of equipment and the amount of cybernetics that's available and and the emphasis in character building on purchasing equipment has has broken broken that verisimilitude for me it's a it's a deeply simulationist system masquerading as a narrative game it's a game where you can get mechanical bonuses for fixing your blaster pistol by cutting off the trigger guard and 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 filing off the front sight right and and my system mastery buddy loves it like that's another sweet spot game for him because it's both narrative because he does love the narrative stuff but then Sitting down with a book and really analyzing, you know, the 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 cost benefit of stuff is 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 a wonderful evening for him. And Star Wars, with the myriad of supplements and with the myriad of specializations, um, really is is a is is a great game for him. I, one of the things that drives me to really list that is probably probably my favorite system, um, I and mean, one I wish I could play a lot more of is I've had games, uh, I've run games that were very, very much like, you know, the canon movies, you know, very Star Warsy. I've had games of all Jedis. I've had Old Republic games that were totally different in tone. You know, I've had, I played Imperial games that were totally different in tone. So you can get this huge range of, of games. And, uh, you know, you're 100% right on the how kind of uh, granular the equipment purchasing and specializations can get. But uh, I just throw most of that out the window and have, have a good time playing it. As as a system guy, as a writer, I I own all of that stuff, quote unquote, for research purposes. Oh, of um, <laughs> but but the reality is, it's just a it, it literally legitimately is a good system. There's a ton of stuff we can do with that. Um, I'm reading the Android book right now, and uh, both Worlds of Android and Under the Beanstalk, and and I really want to run it. And that's again a really good you know that's a sign of a really good system is is. Um, everything. Every time I'm turning a page, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I could totally use this." Oh, that reminds me. By the way, um, another book that's going with me is, um, and and I'm not uh, um, the D and D third edition version of uh, Forgotten Realms, which I think is one of the greatest RPG books ever produced, bar none. Period. Um, the the quality of the production is amazing, but you know I kept telling you guys how important it is that each paragraph that I write does something, I take it from that book. That book is chock... The, the writers put so many cool ideas and so much content into every single paragraph. Um, and I'm not even a big fan of Feyron. Um, See, that's really interesting to me because when I hear 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, it sounds like the most white bread thing imaginable. But but now I'm but now I'm hearing that this is... It's not about necessarily the, the, the specific content. It's about here's how you create something that's a usable product. Right. And I, I, like I just said, I'm not a fan of Forgotten Realms. Like I've run in a couple of Forgotten Realms and, and I appreciate it more than like Greyhawk, but you know, I, I will take Dark Sun or, or a Baron. Spelljammer. Spelljammer. And oh, that, Spelljammer. that one's always been weird for me, but I, and apparently it's coming out by the way. I don't know if you guys saw that. That's the next. Yeah, yes. But, but, but Feyron never did it for me. But if you guys, I don't know what it's worth on eBay right now, but if you guys are fans of role-playing games, go look at that book as an exemplar of one of the, the most underappreciated gaming books out there because the writers just did. If you're not a fan of Feyron, 
and you read that book, you're going to walk away and be like, damn, that is that is a really cool setting. Yeah, my copy is very, very doggy. So kind of because I, I have a captive audience and you guys are stuck with me for a little bit because you're too sure. polite <laughs> to get rid of me. The other thing, though, like talking about Star Wars and a couple other games, something I've been exploring personally lately is um, how to make races more distinct. And, and it's a complaint that I have with both Star Wars and D&D 5th edition is that the races are too too similar and don't explore both conceptually from a setting standpoint what the races could be as well as mechanically. And I've started to explore that in some of my other stuff. But yeah, that's one of my big complaints about, you know, like I play a Corrin in the game and the reality is a Corrin really isn't that distinct from a human. It, it's distinct in terms of how I role play it, but from a mechanical standpoint... The, the benefits and the disadvantages for playing a Quarren, which should be one of the most alien races out there, not very significant. Well, Star Wars, you have 5,000 different alien races, and you just can't mechanically represent them. So some of that falls on mechanically it's very similar, but if, if this person knows Star Wars, then they just know that a Quarren is a little bit different. Uh, I'm not really sure how you could fix that mechanically, unless you just only had like 10 races. Oh no, I totally could do it. The difficulty is that you're you're talking about you want something that's distinct enough to be worth including in a book and not just be a couple of stat modifiers and a human being with a different head slapped on. But the more um, grist you add in there, the more uh, flavor you put in, especially the more like mechanical stuff, the harder you can make it to just kind of slot into a game. Like the, the struggle is always like 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 you want to you want to have. Um, I'll use the, D, the fifth edition example. You want to have Dro be a player race, and yet technically they're supposed to be like universally despised as awful bastards and always evil. And so either you sacrifice what makes that race distinct, or you make them essentially a constant source of friction that goes over from being flavorful to being actually very difficult and frustrating to play around. So the other the other disadvantage to it and is you the more powerful and more distinct you make your beginning characters and in this case with like races the less valuable experience points become and that's the thing that i've been kind of trying to explore and figure out is i've got like a, a fifth edition of setting up on drive through that's for free if you guys want to see like what i've been doing it's called under the scale and and my specific design decision was i want humans and all the other races to be mechanically dissimilar from each other that they feel really really different and and realistically it's only by third or fourth level in Dungeons and Dragons that you start to that the power that the races that I present start to be overcome by experience points does that make sense I mean current D&D is doesn't even start till third level anyway I would I hate playing for a second level D&D characters nowadays I I'm right there with you I understand what you're saying that there's a there's a big problem with any kind of bonus that you can give a, a character in a game where at the beginning it's it's completely broken and by the end it's meaningless. It's difficult to make it scale smoothly with the rest of the game. So it starts out as as very unbalancing and then rapidly gets forgotten as it gets overshadowed by other abilities. So what is the way to make all that stuff distinct? It's it's a I don't have a full answer yet and it's been something that I've yeah. really really enjoyed kind of exploring is you know like how far can you can you as a designer push the like racial modifiers um and still leave those characters relatively balanced and 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 still make it worthwhile to advance frankly um one of the guys that that 
uh, are you guys familiar with the game Hellas uh, by Jerry Grayson? I am not. Yeah, so it's it's futuristic Greece, um, and it's like uh, it's a series of stars that basically equate to the city states of Greece, and uh, it's a neat little system. It's 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 one of the systems that I not the system, but the the setting. I I worked with Jerry a little bit, um, and and I remember going to Jerry because his races are. Are, are aren't there's no attempt to balance them like they're they're not like there's not like you know angelic level and and you know cobalt um, level disparities but the there are distinct races that are mechanically more powerful than the others just from the outset and i remember going to jerry and saying i, I think you messed up man and and he was like no i, I didn't i wanted to specifically explore this area of characters that aren't balanced from the outset. And if you want to take X character, um, X character race, then you have to have a good reason for it. And and if you're a min-maxer, you're going to all go to that that particular race, and there's nothing wrong with that. And he felt that um, that kind of reflected uh, reality, and especially the reality of the setting. And I, I've res- really, really respected that design decision. Like, there's no, there's no... It doesn't always need to be this sense of balance. Um, I, as a designer, do try to get to some sense of balance because, again, it gets to those kind of meaningful decisions. But his decision to to excise or to leave the race, the racial power balance completely behind creates an entirely different interesting set of meaningful decisions. Uh, something that we ran into, um, and this is stepping back a, a hair on the conversation, I ran the Expanse RPG playtest for Melonbread, and I think... A few other folks from that of the opera, and I think I know Melonbread had um, maybe not an issue. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but he, you weren't that Melonbread wasn't that familiar with the setting. I'm not sure you'd seen the show or read the books, whereas I was. Yeah. Never. So for for me, when I describe uh, a, a Martian ship, because I've read this, because I know the setting, I I don't need to describe it much further than that. But I didn't I didn't realize the kind of what we were done that that wasn't really that helpful to people who never played in it. Uh, or who had never seen the show or watched or uh, read the book or anything. My feeling was just that that nothing in that scenario felt like it was coming alive in a distinct setting. The entire events of the game could have taken place in a basement in New York, and we would have been none well, I wiser. Think, I think if you had uh, a worldly knowledge of the universe, you, you would have put yourself into the setting uh, and been a little would have been a little more alive. But I I agree with you 100. Uh, percent I just think this kind of goes back to we're talking about races and like Star Wars races not being that mechanically different. Um, that's kind of the parallel that I was drawing there. Yeah, that it's it's difficult to make stuff um, distinct in not only in the flavor but in the system. So I've got a question for you guys to kind of pull it back into Delta Green for a bit. Is have any of you explored building characters completely divorced from the character building guidelines in the Agent's Handbook? How would you do it instead? One of the, one of the sessions that we did that I've done is just build your character. I, I, you have as many points as you want as long as it is it is realistic from your perspective, right? So if your character, to use you know Spanish language, if your character is fluent in Spanish, give them a 90%. And um, if, if the person is, is, a, is the greatest marksman and that is your concept, uh, they've got a 95% in firearms. Have, have any of you kind of explored something like that? I, like, like, I, like, I can't imagine. No. I like the idea... The, where we tend to run things online and for a diverse group i don't think that would work as well because the, ten- the tendency to min max and not really have a good concept for a character might rear its ugly head 
Not even just that, but I, I, I can't audit every character sheet that comes through my hands. I have to trust at some level that people are coming from a consistent, um, that people, people have, have at least some kind of shared reference point. I still, I don't think I would even, I would even do that though with a, with a home group, just because I don't, I honestly don't, I can't look at a character sheet and say what's reasonable. I don't know in my heart of hearts what is a what is a normal thing for a person to be. Even if I trusted the person I was who was doing it to not be a filthy min maxer, I shouldn't say filthy min maxer. That's what I am. Um, I was about to say, didn't you didn't you build a character? You built you built a character whose whole shtick was wrestling uh, a star spawn, or was that someone else? Yeah, because there's no rules in the book that say that you can't pin <laughs> things with 25 or 100 strength, even if they're shoggoths. So for one round, I'm gonna beat that thing's ass, and then. The next round, he'll have to roll strength to break free, and then I can do it again. Let me challenge you guys, at least one of you, to do that. And and don't feel any obligation whatsoever to audit the characters. And it, do it with a trusted group or even without a trusted group. And just see how this goes. Because the the other thing that I've conceptually, conceptually gone to with Delta Green is... Um, when I first read about Delta Green, actually, it was in a Dragon magazine. And I think I may have mentioned this to you guys in the past, but... Um, it was, it was the original Dragon Magazine review of Delta Green, and one of the things that stuck with me is, you know, like, Call of Cthulhu was, was approached as, if we, if we only had that one more stick of dynamite, it might have been successful. And Delta Green was, here's all the dynamite you want, and you're still going to be unsuccessful. And, and I've always kind of kept that heart, and I, I still think that this version of Delta Green does that better than any others, and I challenge you guys to see if you can break the system by allowing your players to build, if you want to say mid-max characters, but I, I would prefer that they be more realistic, you know, um, and say you have as many skill points as you want, maybe regulate the bonds or whatever, um, or don't, and see if it still comes off as a horror game. And I suspect it, in my playtests, it did. It'd be interesting to hear what your, your results are on a subsequent podcast. Maybe that's a challenge we should extend to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And see if it, it still works for... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if it fails, it's that's a really interesting data set for me as, as a designer um, and for the other Delta Green guys. And if it works, um, that's just as cool. I would be I'd be really curious um, to see what the results are from that. Just, you know, email your feedback like to, to uh, Chris Gunning at state.gov with uh, very <laughs> particular Arabic names in the subject. He'll really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and also we've we've got we've got a string of key of keywords to ensure that he reads it. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> okay, but but I I want to I want to see. Um, I was thinking that you were going to go in the opposite direction and um, some something that that games do sometimes to varying degrees of. Uh, of success is rather than do a numeric character creation system, they do a life path system where you, you go and, and Delta green, Delta green has like, you know, bonus skill packages. It has professions, but a life path system is something where you go through this narrative structure and you make decisions about what your character's life is like and other stuff that happened to them. Burning wheel does that traveler. I'm, yeah, I'm, traveler. I am most assuredly not talking about burning wheel cause I never played it, but if it does that, then yeah, awesome. Burning wheels life path all the way. Uh, like session zero type stuff. Tra- Traveler Traveler does that too, I think. Warhammer Fantasy used to do it. By the way, um, uh, Luke Crane is a friend of mine. Oh, awesome! And he's he's a big inspiration. The greatest game. I'm probably never going to convince people to play with. 
It's okay. Sorry. Um, it is. It is legitimately an awesome game. And again, one of those games that every paragraph matters. And he did such a good job of uh, giving sidelines um, and little tips here and there to tell the players and the readers what his design goals were. And that, too, has been a huge inspiration. If you guys haven't played Burning Wheel, please take the time, if nothing else, to read it because it is it still remains really, really powerful and interesting. And, it, you know, it makes social roles potentially as as important as combat. I played a character that was all about using what, what in Burning Wheels called circles, which are basically social roles. And he was the most effective character I probably have ever played um, and, and just a ton of fun. So uh, what would a life path generator look like for Delta Green? That's a cool uh, vision. Yeah, well, basically the problem the problem that a lot of life path generators get into is that, um, especially in percentile systems, you get into cases where you end up with, with like 20% or 30% spread across a lot of skills, and then you're, you're fine until you ever actually have to roll any of them, which, as we've discussed before, it's better when the game is, doesn't work that way. But, uh, you know, if, if you can make a life path system that generates a character that's uh, doesn't have to be on par with you know the ultra min max guy, but is at least like usable and fun. Then that's great because there's Delta Green. I think is is d- does character creation pretty well. I think I like how it's um, the way that the the budgeting of of points to percentile skills is handled better than I think most other games I've seen that do it. But I think there's still there's still I always think like would it be possible to to reduce this even further to um, Something that's more, uh, I guess I, I ever use the word narrative. Something like the something like those those role tables in the Delta Green briefing documents that suggest how your character came into contact with the unnatural in the first place. But for the whole, but for the whole sheet, I, I could dig it. Sort of like uh, what specialization you choose as, like even within like your federal agency, like you know what decisions you make. Like I just gotta uh, help fully flesh out and develop the character a little bit more. Or if you even want to go back, like, oh, this guy's in the FBI. He started out as a beat cop. While he was a beat cop, you know, he really liked making drug arrests. So I'm going to give him, like, a skill in pharmacy. Uh, you know, just that sort of thing. So something I do, and I'm going to loop this into Delta Green, but something I like to do in Star Wars, because, again, much like D- Dungeons & Dragons, a base-level Star Wars character is garbage. Um, so I, w- I always want to give players an extra, like, 45, 60 uh, experience to play with. So what I do is I say, all right, you make your character, and then I give them a, a, a scenario. All right, you're at the academy, you want to be a pilot. You know, your instructor, you know, grounds you because you're, you know, you're a loose cannon. You know, tell me how you resolve this. And no roles or anything, but they just make them tell me a little bit about the character, and then they tell me something. All right, so you get, take 50 XP, spend it how you want. Sometimes I'll give like a cool perk, almost like, all right, because you stood up to your guy, you're gonna you're gonna get an, an extra boost when dealing with you know uh, higher level pilots. We're giving you a hard time or something. So a fun little 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 bit there. Kevin, I'm so happy that you say this because I know that when other people do this to you and make you talk about your character's relationship with their mother, you get super pissed. I do that. Um, so you could do that with Delta Green. You could say, all right, your character's an FBI agent. Well, how did he start out? You know, tell me, give the, give the person a, a little scenario in their first year at the academy and then give them some, all right, take 20 points and spend, put five points into four different things. You know, um, you kind of flush it out that way. So the background kind of packages do that to some extent, right? Yeah, a little bit. This could be a little more of a back and forth, like character building moment. And I'm a big fan of that stuff, right? Like it, at my table, if a player is willing to invest the time 
um, and the effort to come up with with uh, a backstory. It doesn't even have to be a cool backstory. It could be the most mundane backstory, whatever. Um, I am happy to to reward them with whatever they're looking for. I think that could be interesting from motivation standpoint as well if you uh, force someone to make a choice like because uh, uh, motivations are another really neat part of delta green i think enough people don't um don't utilize because like uh kevin you mentioned that when someone looked at the fact that uh Saphir's bonds are one stripper girlfriend and another stripper girlfriend and an ex and an ex-wife then you kind of get the idea of like who that character is and motivations i think are pretty important for that as well for like preaching characters and those sort of things so like the life path system or how you want to think about building a fully fleshed out character should also inform the motivations too. Again, that's where Delta Green can really shine as opposed to other games out there. Um, and it's something that I hope... It, I see a lot of players... It, it's been interesting, right? Because a lot of players came from the old version of Delta Green, which was a lot more gun fetishism, and have made the transition into the new Delta Green. A lot more have done that than I expected. And a lot more are much more comfortable with the idea of motivations and bonds and things along those lines and generic firearm stats. Um, I thought there was going to be a lot more blowback. Uh, and I've thought about why that is, right? And yeah, no pun intended. Um, and maybe it's partly because the, you know, the same individuals that were interested in, in Delta Green 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, have matured and have played those gun bunny games and are now interested in more sophisticated, more mature, more challenging types of games. And yet you get the new players who haven't done so. <laughs> right, but they but then they come to Delta Green in a different perspective, right? So they come to it, the agent's handbook that, like we were saying, that doesn't have lists of guns. It has a single you know list of guns, and there's not a lot of equipment stuff. And instead, the page count is dedicated more towards... Um, I guess from a mechanical standpoint, bonds and and that stuff and skills. Um, and then you get the back end, which is agency stuff. And even the agency stuff isn't, there's not a lot of mechanical stuff in any one of those agencies, right? It's mostly about giving the player the right mindset to be able to play that agency. And so that's, it's telling the player what the expectations are for that game, even the new ones. Yeah, it shifts the focus under what's important. I came to Delta Green only in this new edition. Um, but so I never played the old Call of Cthulhu. I've never actually played Call of Cthulhu. Never even read Lovecraft. Yeah, I've never even read Lovecraft. But to me, Call, uh, Delta Green is, is always more of an investigative cop game. So it's never been that kind of gun game for me. But at the same time, like if I could get if I could convince anyone to play Phoenix Command with me, I would. That game is awesome. It's just not Delta Green. <laughs> oh man! So one of my favorite games of all time, and probably one that I, I take with me to Bolivia, um, is Spycraft One E. I love that game with so much, and, and nobody will ever play it with me because the equipment, the, I mean, the, the process of, of gearing up your character for every session is so epic and difficult and glorious, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, that's it's the same deal. But but that game does a very good job of showing you like what is important, if nothing else, by the sheer page count that's dedicated to certain things. I'm reminded of... Um... When, when Jake and Kevin and I were at Gen Con last year, we were showing off these little uh, equipment reference cards we had printed <laughs> that one of the guys in, in on the server had made. And both both uh, Scott Galancy and Caleb Stokes independently on different days in different buildings said this essentially the same thing, which is, that's really cool, but none of it's going to matter. <laughs> well, here, here's, here's the thing, though, is that the other thing you guys said was that 
those characters that had the most cards were yes, the ones everything. that got picked yes. the most. That's that is true. also true. Yeah, we have quantifiable data that says that. Here you go, player. Here's a here's six pre-gens to pick from. Flip, flip, flip. I'm the one with the most gear. All right, fine. This guy's well, got yeah, two because... grenades and an automatic rifle. Because what does what does the anthropologist have? He has he has gravitas. Had a spell. We gave him a spell. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's the next step is spell cards because that'd be like. Obviously not appropriate for Delta Green, but when does it ever okay. stop me? When you say spell, do you mean do you mean hypergeometry? No, I don't. I mean spell because I hate <laughs> that word. Oh, it's a good word. Don't even. Um, but that you know, like, and that's 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 the fun of Delta Green is, yeah, you know, again, you've got how many grenades? You've got a flamethrower. Oh, that's awesome. Let's get a, let's let's see how this plays out because there's just so many assumptions in other games that having the flamethrower is a good idea. Well, you know, like, there was a reason in World War II those guys that had the flamethrowers were, you know, like, nobody hung out with Melon, them. Melon, you should tell... Well, that's especially... You should tell, Chris, uh, how your characters end up with... I bet your godlike character. No, tell them about how your characters in, in uh, Night of the Opera always end up when there are explosives involved. <laughs> um, Which characters? Do you mean the ones that get killed by other players, or do you mean the one who's a <laughs> firefighter who throws pipe bombs and then claims it was the terrorist that did it because he's a Neo-D and he can tell? Well, going back to the character with the spell and the issue of none of this is going to help you, Kevin, tell Chris what happened to Mosin during one of your games. Yeah, well, he was gunned down in a firefight uh, from a machine gun nest. Uh, is that the, the horrifying death you're referring to? I'm referring to the part where he tried to use the spell on somebody and the little Vietnamese kid whipped out an AK-47 and said, don't let the wizard speak. <laughs> that happened to Kevin. Were you were you, were were you just telling us that you don't run a gun game? You just give a child an AK. Hey, when he pulled that trigger, he was no longer a child. But that that's a cool story, <laughs> right? Like that's and and just the image that I'm having right now of that is is pretty neat, right? And and that stuff, you know, should backfire. And and it sounds like in most of our cases they do. You know what's funny? The the quantifiable data we picked up at Chincon using the same uh, pregen characters. Uh, true, more people picked the uh, the really awesome operator guys that had all the cool stuff and the big bad guns and the grenades and stuff. Those are also the ones that uh, died. Yeah, or or it didn't matter. Oh, that's a cool body armor you have there. Too bad your too bad your body armor won't help you cover up this murder you've just committed. But that's that comes down to this whole idea that that Delta Green does was relatively well, which is if you give somebody a hammer, all they're going to see is nails. Unfortunately. Right, like yes, right, and 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 again, I come back to the flamethrower. If you give somebody a flamethrower, it's empowering. Like they're like, oh, right. Like how many problems am I going to be able to solve with this flamethrower? And by the end of the session, if you're a GM worth your salt at all, uh, that person's probably committed mass murder and and has is probably in jail at you know at the end of the session. Oh, you're gonna imprison the guy with the flamethrower, or they've spent the entire session. <laughs> They spent the entire session of the library doing research. Are you sure they were burning the books? And that's and that's the fun that I I from from my perspective that's the the fun I have. Like right is when those those players sit down and they're like, oh yeah, I've got this was the, the character with the carbine. I absolutely want to play that character, and and then to discover that that was absolutely if you're you're talking from kind of an optimization standpoint, he was the wrong character to pick. Well. It it depends though because one of the things that um, new Sk- new school Delta Green tries to do more of is to make the threats um, instead of world spanning alien gods. It's more supposed to be about human beings, 
And one of the struggles you get into there is that human beings are the one thing that that shooting guns at works really well 99% of the time. So you do get into these situations where it says on the book that Delta Green's not about guns, but clearly the other guy didn't hear that because he's got one. And so in those cases, Mr. Mr. 80% firearms, 10% lethality gun, 16 dexterity really is the right option. Or he's the target. Well, well, that's the other thing is that, yeah, you, you, one, one thing that I've, I've been trying harder to do is that if the enemies are smart, they're not going to shoot the, the defenseless anthropologist first. And they're not going to, you know, so he's not going to immediately get punished for not having high decks and good firearms. They're going to shoot at the guy who can protect himself and basically focus the combat on the guy who made his character to do combat. And therefore, people get their roles in the game. They don't get just immediately dunked on for a character creation decision. Yeah. Which is important to me. And that's, and you're, you're dead on. And that is, that it, that should be important because. I mean that that does reflect kind of real life and the decision making that the, the NPCs should be should be doing. But it, again, it also separates Delta Green from other games. You know, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, everybody everybody has a role to play in combat. You know, um, yeah. And and in Delta Green, that's not true. And picking up the handgun makes you as much a target as as not. And in a lot of cases, the optimum decision is to leave the handgun and run away. It's just. For a lot of us, that doesn't feel suitably adventuresome, even though it still tells a very a damn good story. That's uh, that's why fight, flight, and freeze is also a really good mechanic for temporary insanities. Oh, th- this is this is going to get me back to something I did want to ask about. Um, the rules for temporary insanities, great, fantastic. Rules for projection, amazing. Some of my favorites in the game. Rules for activating disorders. Uh, who, 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 um, who masterminded that? Because that's an area that's that's caused constant friction for stop me. writing names on that rock to throw man hold on man no i i want to i want to i want to like this this is this is going to be for me like i want to get better at this because i don't feel like the way i've been doing it has produced a satisfactory result i don't know and i know that's not the answer you're looking okay. for but unfortunately i don't know that no, no, no 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 it's fine it's fine i i i want but i i, I wanted to to I, I was wondering if i should grill you on or not but essentially the rules for activating disorders um you make a sand test. If you fail that one and lose sand from a stimuli, you make a follow-up sand test to see if your disorder activates. And then if your disorder does activate, you can make a third sand test to try and suppress it. And so you've essentially made three die rolls to resolve one mechanical interaction. And I'm thinking the other rules are so elegant and so well put together. How do we get this one in line with that? That one was, I mean, from my perspective and on my table, has been about building stress and tension. Um and also kind of underscoring the fact that that simple roles are not going to be able to overcome major mental disorders. That, that there are too many points of failures that once you start going down the mental disorder road, um, you're not recovering from it. You're only going to be delaying what is ultimately going to be a, a major repercussion for your character. And, and there's no way around that. And so you're right. I don't mind that it... I don't mind that it's punitive. I just think that that having that I, I want I want a way to to make that more streamlined instead of having to. Uh, one one of the criticisms that that games with sanity systems get is that you you know four people see a monster now four people have to roll sanity and resolve a mechanical interaction and if some of them aren't listening you have to tell them twice and then people want to project and you've taken this great moment of tension and turned it into a, a bureaucratic exercise in number crunching. And when you have someone has to make three die rolls instead of one, you've compounded that. And I'm trying to come up with a way that preserves what you're saying with, like, 
disorders aren't fun and adding stress to the situation makes them worse, but also how do I make that not painful from an out-of-character game, uh, gameplay perspective? So one of the ideas that I, I, I toyed with at my table that I haven't implemented that I'll throw out there was keeping those roles secret, um, recording them, then talking to the player after the game letting them know the repercussions. So basically they don't know how much sand they lost until the end of the game, um, including, you know, the immediate derangements and the fight flight and stuff. Cause you lose that, that sense of tension within the game. So there's a distinct loss of, of holding all the sand loss to the, the end of the session. Then to still add a level of risk, um, I made it, I, I was exploring the idea of um, making it so, in subsequent sessions, if there was a major failure on that character's part, that's when the fight or flight, that's when the derangements, like it all came cascading down, cascading down in a single moment. So basically this character built up like the equivalent of sanity sort of uh, static electricity and in subsequent sessions was going to burn it all off at some point of uh, mechanical failure. I like it. I think the one... If, uh, I think one of the reasons I'm guessing you haven't done that is it's a lot of bookkeeping to put on your on your uh, in your hands, where uh, sanity tracking is normally something that the players can handle themselves. Yeah, and that's... instead you've got you've got five jokers who now have uh, numbers that that live behind your screen. But the other the other part of that, that I think is that it takes away the um, the project the projection trade off because if you don't know how much sand you're losing, you're not thinking I can just sublimate this by hurting the people I care about, which as we talked about earlier, is an amazing mechanic. On the contrary, doesn't that make projection really intense? If you uh, if you look at your player because you, you're keeping everything secret from them, and you say, "This is pretty bad, man. Do you want to project?" And they don't. If you give them some indication to say it hurts yeah. or this is this is real bad, then be extremely painful for you. <laughs> the the other thing that that conceptually had a problem with is that it made downtime super intensive, like. Delta Green can already be a fairly intensive downtime process if you're if you're playing it straight, like rules is written. This was then an extra level where I, as the as the game master, as the handler, would have to um, engage with every player individually and have a meaningful conversation yeah. about how much sanity they lost, what are the repercussions to their bonds, you know. Um, and then also, I I thought that I, you would probably have to have a conversation with those individuals about what they anticipated their breaking point would be in the next session, right? So um, when they got, when they, when they rolled a zero one, what did they anticipate their, their break to look like? Um, so it, it, that's what was, it wasn't the bookkeeping though. You're absolutely right. Like the bookkeeping would not be fun, but it was that extra level of conversation um, for somebody that had more time uh, than I do. That might be the route to go. Um, but that's very experimental. That's absolutely the real struggle with with um, even yeah, just home scenes as they are. Is that if I really want to dig into it, that's four people who have to wait patiently while I essentially do improv with one person. Right, and then the other part again comes back to that stuff starts to get really dark, and not everybody wants to explore that. And sometimes bonds as a blade of armor is a wonderfully mechanical way to represent some very narratively dark areas the other the other reason why i have trouble with it is that i have i um basically 
am a clearinghouse for a constant revolving door of characters and players who uh, I struggle to remember even after I've seen them a number of times because I do the whole open table thing. So basically I count on people to manage their own disorders and the activation thereof because I, I can't. I can't look at five people and say, oh yeah, he's got a phobia of Shoggoths because he saw one in this operation because I, I wasn't there. You know, and the players that are doing that are in the game for the right reasons, are interested yes, in telling exactly. an interesting story. If somebody's at the table... I'm not one of those people, but I love those people. Right. Those people are the reason I run this game. <laughs> and that's, you know, like, those are the people that, that make us as handlers and game masters, our lives are so much easier, you know, right? When you need that extra 15 or 20 minutes to just kind of process what's going on, and you've got that one player at your table that is willing to take the spotlight for a little bit and and yes. and have that conversation with the other players, um, whoever that person is. And if you are listening to the podcast and you are that player, bless you, because you have made yes. my life yes. as, as a handler and a game master so much better. And if you're not that person, um, take that leap. If you're a player... Um, take that leap to explore the bonds and and projecting and stuff like that and emote for a little bit because not only is it cool and it's a cool storytelling per- point of view, but as a handler, oh, the break is just awesome. That's all we have for you this week. A quick note of correction from Shane Ivey. The lethality rules in the Agent's Handbook were written by Greg Stolze, and the consolidation of firearms into a single skill dates back to Shane and Greg's earliest draft of the rules in 2010. We'd like to give a big thanks to both Shane and Chris for these last two episodes, and to you for listening. In the description of this episode, we've put a link to Under the Scale, Chris Gunning's campaign setting for Dungeons & Dragons. You'll also find links to the R and Night of the Opera subreddit and Discord server, and to our various social media pages. Reach out and let us know what you thought of this episode, and especially let us know if you took up Chris's character creation challenge. We'd love to hear how that went. Thanks again for listening to episode 20 of The Green Box. Until next time, we'll be in touch.